0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: Hi. It's wonderful to have all of you here. Um So I'm going to introduce our panel, and um, we're going to spend some time talking a little bit about the film, and um, then we'll also have a chance to get some questions from the audience. But let me start by introducing the panel. Um, We have, uh, I'm going to start with Dr. Brenda Major, actually, over there (laughs) in red waving. She is a distinguished professor in our Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences here at UCSB. Um, She's uh, done amazing, influential work um, in the areas of stress and stigma, discrimination, and um, in particular, while she's here on the panel, um, she has a strong interest in uh, the notion of resilience. So the idea of people who, you know, a lot of the film has focused on facing adversities, so people who face those adversities but um, are able to bounce back and what factors go on that um, either put you at risk or or make you resilient in those contexts. So it's really wonderful to have her here, and she's also the director of the Center for the Science of Human Resilience um, here on campus. And then um, we also have Dr. Maya Rawson Slater, who's an assistant professor in economics Economics. Um, and she her research has looked at pre- and postnatal and early childhood factors that impact long-term well-being. And in particular, um, one of her studies that caught my eye when I was planning the panel um, was her work um, on looking at maternal stress um, during the in-utero period and the implication implications for. Um, the long-term and intergenerational persistence of poverty. So very relevant and a really interesting and unique perspective to add to what you've already seen in the film. And then let me introduce the filmmakers over here, down at the end. I'm going to save you for last. <laughs> um, we have Stephen Jillen Hall, um, who is the producer in um, on this film. Although you may also know him as a director, um, producer, writer, um, and um, and also father, and um, so many different great productions in his life. Um, and so I think both both Kathleen and Stephen have both professional and personal um, investment in this film and the topic around this film um, around as parents and as filmmakers. Um, so we're really excited um, to have them both here to add that voice. And, and in addition, both of them have um, taken off from this film and started writing about, about it um, in another outlet. So you can look on the Huffington Post and see their... Um, uh, blog and series that they've been contributing there um, to see kind of more of of the exploration of some of the topics in the film. And then finally, Kathleen Hall sitting here on my left. Um, I'm delighted to have her here. She's the director of this amazing documentary that you guys just got a chance to see. And... Um, I think she is just the kind of uh, director that um, we in a, at a university audience truly love and embrace. She um, probably partly because she's also had an academic career in her past. She was a faculty member in film at um, Boulder and at Vassar um, and now is a full-time filmmaker. But also because many of the themes that run through The work that she has done really focus on bring to life a lot of the types of topics that we try to talk about in classrooms, and um, really and and um, do it in such a an impactful way, and um, and have these amazing social justice. Um, themes. Um, she's done work around sexual trafficking, um, mental health issues like eating disorders, and now here we have um, this film focused on in utero. So, I just want to welcome our panel We give them a round of applause for being here. We're so delighted. <laughs> okay, so I'll ask some questions, and while I'm asking questions, you guys can be brewing about the, some of the questions you have for our panel panel. But I'll start with um, Dr. Major. Um, So I wondered if you might talk a little bit about um, some of the relevant research. Um, You know, right now there's uh, adverse childhood experiences, ACEs, have become quite a buzzword um, that people are paying a lot more attention to early exposure to adversity and not thinking of it as something that only a small population really experiences, but really something that um, anyone can go out there and you can calculate your own ACE score and see kind of what the long-term implications Mm -hmm. are. So I wondered if you wanted to just comment on kind of where the research is now and and around that and and the... um, well,
2: I, I think it's a, it's a fascinating question. There's um, a lot of research on the long-term impact now of these adverse childhood experiences. And when we talk about that, we're talking about exposure, for example, to household dysfunction, violence in the family, a family member who's been imprisoned, physical abuse or psychological abuse or sexual abuse. Um, so the original study had these various categories of childhood experiences and basically asked um, 17,000 adults um, you know how many of these things they had been exposed to as children, and then has, researchers have been following. You know what are the implications for longevity and for um, medical risk factors and for psychological outcomes and psychosis, and the data is really quite compelling. That the more adverse um, childhood experiences, more ACEs, people um, report having experienced, the worse mental and physical health. Um, With adolescents, um, the more they report exposure to ACEs, the worse they are doing in school. There seems to be a dose-response relationship, so the more um, exposure you have, the more types of events that people report experiencing, the worse their health. Um, The other thing, another thing that's interesting is they tend to co-occur. So somebody who reports one type of exposure, (laughs) those same people often report exposure to other types of events. So clearly there is um, some clustering, and another thing I think that's interesting about these data is that um, certainly the early research and some of the later research suggests that it's not a particular category that is a lot more harmful than another. Than others, that you know, exposure to one type of trauma or childhood maltreatment may have the same kind of negative implications as exposure to other types. So mm-hmm. I think the research is really quite interesting and quite compelling about just... And I think the other thing is that um, a much higher proportion of us... Um, have been exposed to adverse childhood experiences. So a lot of us have been through, certainly some, the more that we have experienced, generally the research suggests the worse the outcomes.
1: Yeah, I just actually spent um, the day at a summit here in Santa Barbara with a group of educators and health professionals, and we were talking about ACEs. Um, I mean, it really has become something that many people are very concerned with, with our youth. And um, they actually had all of us submit anonymously our ACE scores and then told the group kind of where we stood and as you said it's very common. In fact, our group um, uh, had higher levels than the original study. Mm -hmm. So um, it is very common and I think people are recognizing more the impact and the importance of you know, addressing it. So mm-hmm. thank you. So Dr. Rustin Slater, I wonder if you might comment more from an economics perspective, some of the research that's out there about, um, you know, the early life origins of kind of long-term well-being.
0: Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. Um, so I think a lot of people might be surprised that economists are part of the research on this. Um, yeah. But, you know, in the last few decades, there's really been a surge of research on this topic. And I think one um, or a few of the things that economists bring to the table. Um, so one is a lot of the research in other fields has focused on these really dramatic, traumatic events, so big famines, wars, um, you know, vast disease epidemics, finding these long-term negative consequences. Economists have been really focused, uh, or more focused, on um, you know, smaller and perhaps more policy manipulable events. Um, so, for instance, thinking about exposure to air pollution um, and thinking about what levels of air pollutions are more or less harmful for long-term consequences um, when that exposure happens in utero or in early life. Exposure to various sources of stress during pregnancy that is not just from sort of really huge dramatic events, but sort of more common uh, everyday occurrences. Um, you know, exposure to radiation, things like that. Um, the other thing that the research has been... Uh, able to do in economics is really focus on identifying causation as opposed to sort of correlations. Um, And uh, there, you know, a lot of times these studies use these really large data sets with millions of observations, so we're able to detect fairly small effects. And the research shows that, yes, um, there are important consequences of early life shocks, so some of the ones that I mentioned, um, both in utero as well as in the early life but that also there are policies that exist, and I'm going to talk about this, I think, later on a bit more, that can compensate um, for these shocks. So I think one big takeaway for me from the research is, you know, it's not that we're all sort of doomed from the in uterus stage onward, but that there's important um, interventions that can occur that can compensate um, for for any, any initial disadvantages.
1: Wonderful. Thank you. Um, so, you know, here's all this research in, in two s- seemingly different fields, um, psychology and economics, and certainly in other fields as well, explore these topics. But why, as filmmakers, why was it important to you? I mean, this is for both um, Stephen and Kathleen. Why was it important to you um, to make this film?
3: Um, we get I get asked that so many times, and it's always a different, you know, I always think about it more. Um, because the way it happened was so gradual and natural, we were trying to have a baby and um, running in, you know running to some delays and some you know uh, problems had a couple miscarriages and so just from an emotional standpoint, I wanted to understand you know why this was happening, what could be you know some of the reasons just uh, you go through that you know you you, you investigate and I found myself. Kind of unconsciously putting on the hat of the writer-director and rolling up my sleeves and just reading everything I could get my hands on about conception and pregnancy and um, so it wasn't even just about like you know what is going on with my body and why am I not holding this pregnancy it became much more very quickly because I was encountering such a diversity of research and uh, epigenetics um, when I when I stumbled on that which is now it's hard to. Turn without finding another article about how um, the environment impacts our genetics. Um, but four years ago, it was you had to dig a little more. So when I found it, I thought, Oh my God! You know, this is overturning everything I thought about nature versus nurture, and uh, it opened my eyes to how um, I am the environment of this new being that's coming in, into being. So. Um, it became an education and so I quickly became you know really involved in it and so was my so was my husband and we were sharing all the same research together and we got very inspired and thought you know we don't see this in any documentary that exists now and it was you know we were in a position to to make it happen so we just kept digging and digging. I think the other piece that really um, You know, kind of exploded for us. You know, that made the project even more um, uh, interesting was transgenerational trauma, and how you know we push the envelope back from people used to think. You know, that from birth, birth is when life starts for an individual, and then we're pushing it back towards no. The prenatal period, there's so much going on, and then you push it even back further, and. To the generations which preceded you, what happened to your mother and her mother, and your grandfather, and, and how all of that contributes to um, the sort of tapestry of who you are. Mm-hmm. So, and then luckily, I didn't know how incredibly hard it would be to make it the film. <laughs> uh, so I so I just dove in, you know. But it was you know four years I think before before we were, we're with you today. So. Yeah, that's
1: incredible. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think the intergenerational piece just makes um, these explorations of one's family tree all the more and the ancestor.com kind of lineage explorations, all the more um, bringing so many insights into people's lives. So it's really interesting. Do you want to add anything? Stephen's busy uh, posting on social media.
0: (laughs) But (laughs) you might want to add something.
4: (laughs) I think the one thing is just, um, I think, just from my point of view and I think probably from Kathleen's um, you know, we've been in the arts and the arts are really all about pushing the envelope You know, the only real art that matters is the art that's cutting into the future and not looking into the past really, that's where the artists really sit and that's exactly the same dynamic as science and that art and science are actually very very um, hand in glove in a way that I don't think I really quite understood until Kathleen pulled me into making this movie
1: Thank you. Great. So let me swing back to Dr. Major and um, just thinking about, um, and then Dr. Ross and Slater as well, in terms of kind of, well, what do we do with this and not just sit with like, oh, okay, you're in trouble if you've had these adverse experiences and that's it, or if if your ancestors have. (laughs) Now it's in your genetic code and too bad. Um, But in fact, there's a whole research on um, resilience. So I wondered if you could touch on some of...
2: I think one of the most remarkable things about our understanding of how people respond to stressors is the extraordinary variation that, you know, two people can experience the exact same event. You know, one person bends and breaks and another person doesn't and just keeps on going. That there is enormous... Individual variation in how people respond to um, stressors. So just because you have experienced, you know, adverse childhood experiences, is not like you know a prescription for the future that all things will be awful. And in, in so when we talk about resilience, we talk about the ability to bounce back in the face of stress or to overcome adversity. And the science really indicates that you know resilience isn't necessarily a trait. It's not. Um, it is there are genetic and psychological and biological and environmental factors that predicts somebody's likelihood of being able to bounce back from adversity. And I think there have been all kinds of really interesting findings that you know, people have, um, have produced in the notion of resilience. One is that people to, a little bit of exposure to um, adversity turns out to be good. So there is actually a curvilinear relationship. So people who have had some exposure actually do better. And people think it's almost like um, they've been a little bit of toughening. You know, we sort of learned how to cope. You learned some coping skills. So having some exposure to adversity, in fact, is a good thing, and I think that's a really important um, thing that we often tend to overlook. It's basically the issue of the dose response is too too much is bad, but a little bit actually turns out to be beneficial. A second is that um, resilience can derive from circumstances um, that occur. That, that it's a combination, often, of events and characteristics. So, for example, there are certain um, genetic um, expressions that will be, you know, associated with negative outcomes only for people who experience certain environmental hazards. And in the absence of those, or environmental stressors, in the absence of those, there's no connection whatsoever between that genetic expression and um, outcomes, So it's an interaction of environment and genetics. A third is that resilience can also derive from coping processes. It's not necessarily um, a trait. It's how you cope, so people can learn. People can learn how to become resilient. Um, It's not necessarily a static quality that can't change. We can learn ways of dealing with our environment reappraisal, turns out to be an excellent coping strategy, for example. It's also the case that delayed recovery can occur in later life from certain types of experiences. For example, a supportive and loving partner that um, forms a secure base. People who've experienced an attachment theorist would call a secure base. So a supportive and loving and secure partner can compensate for um, a, a large exposure to adverse childhood experiences when you're young. So, there can be turning points or events that happen in later life that can make people resilient who maybe didn't look too resilient to begin with. Mm -hmm. And a final thing is that, you know, that's to say that um, there are all these different ways that people can be resilient doesn't mean that there isn't a negative impact of exposure, particularly to harsh and many harsh outcomes. I mean, we're talking about often a relative, you know, relatively, you know, it's, I think, optimally. We would not have those kinds of stressors either prenatally or as children. So, we're talking about a relative balance. So, I mean, there's a lot of science of resilience going on right now, but those are a few sort of takeaway points.
1: Thank you. That's great. And, Dr. Ross and Slater, you alluded to some policy solutions mm-hmm. and ideas out there. So, I don't know if you want to yeah, comment sure. on those.
0: Yeah, so I think one issue that hasn't really been discussed here yet um, is inequality. Um, And the fact that, you know, there's tremendous disparities in exposure to adverse conditions in utero across socioeconomic status groups, right? Low-income pregnant women, mothers are much more likely to experience various stressors due to poverty, um, due to lack of resources, and so on. Due to lack of access to health care, nutritious food, more exposure to bad environmental conditions, and so on. Um, And so then, you know, if we know that these adverse conditions in utero have long-term consequences on a variety of outcomes throughout the life cycle, you can see how this could lead to a sort of persistence of inequality um, across generations even. Um, So the question is, what can we do to reduce those disparities and potentially reduce that persistence and break that sort of cycle of inequality um, and it turns out there's quite a bit of research that suggests that sort of existing um, safety net programs, um, you know, trying to alleviate these sources of stressors for low-income families are actually quite effective. Um, so having access to food stamps, having access to Medicaid, um, public health insurance, for instance, uh, having access to the special supplemental nutrition program for women, infants, and children, um, having high-quality preschool um, whether it's Head Start or whether it's sort of smaller, um, more intensive interventions. All of these programs have been shown to have positive impacts for um, poor children, for, for children, poor children from poor families who were exposed to these programs early on in life um, that had some of these disadvantages. Um, and these uh, policies tend to um, reduce sort of the disparities um, in long-term effects. Um, so I think sort of there's a lot of policy levers that exist um, that can help address um, both just the overall issue of um, uh, exposure in utero to adverse, con- adverse shocks, but also to reduce disparities across groups. Um, one other policy um, that I can talk about is family leave. Um, so some of my research is on the issue of, pay- of paid family leave. Um, so the U.S. is the only um, OECD high-income country that does not have a national uh, family paid family leave policy. Mm-hmm. The state-level policies that we do have, so California has one, is about six weeks long. Most women um, who take it take it after childbirth. Um, some of this research suggested maybe there should be some leave policies uh, designated specifically during the pregnancy period, for instance, um, and and there hasn't been much discussion on that front um, so yeah. far yeah um
1: UCSB has great you know support for leave, but i I would t- I taught and then like both my children two days later had the babies. you know it was like I was up to the minute, so um, and that 's in a good circumstance um, where you, know, you get a lot of support, but um, certainly many many families in the United States struggle with that very issue um, so Kathleen and Stephen, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, how this film has been received and the impact on your audiences and sort of where they're taking it and sort of this extension out that you've gone in terms of um, dissemination through other avenues like writing about it in the Huffington Post. And Any thoughts about that?
3: I'll let Stephen talk um, more about it. But I mean, it's just, it's just that it keeps growing and growing. It's now, I mean, we kind of joke that we're never going to, you know, it's, a, it's really another child. Um, and we're stuck with it for the rest of our lives. Um, <laughs> and you know, Until we, college. <laughs> I, I, and I, I realize I may have left you hanging a little bit, but we did get pregnant and, you know, had a baby. It was all great and fine. And, and Luke, our son, is now two and a half, and I was just telling the group here before that during pre-production um, we were trying to have a baby, and during production, shooting the film, I was pregnant. And then after Luke was born, we were cutting the film. So it's like, we really did have... And then finally, the film you know, was distributed, and it was a very long gestation, this <laughs> film. Um, but yeah, I'll let Stephen explain it, how it's just... You know, it did a festival run for a year, and it, it showed in a lot of different festivals, some very important documentary festivals in Europe, actually, um, where it's, it's kind of been embraced more readily, I think, abroad. Um, but we also had great screenings here, and and after that year, we started doing um, a bunch of other kind, forms of um, distribution, so you can talk about it.
4: Well, I think what's been fascinating for me to watch the process of this movie was really your academic prowess, I'd say, and r- rigorous approach to this walked us into an arena which was when we started the film, not very well known or embraced or even considered um, in the mainstream or even in parts of academia. Um, And so we were reaching out, she was really reaching out to experts around the world who didn't know about each other at the time. And in the process of making the movie, finishing it and getting it out of the world, we've been sort of on a wave that's beginning to, to be felt more and more globally about the critical importance of our future, all of our future in the next generation and how much it's not been protected um, because of the lack of understanding, the lack of science um, around the time from conception to birth. So what's been happening for us is we've been feeling this sort of the, this rise of understanding and the film most films after what's it been about a year and a half, two years the film's been out most films about this point begin to fade and it's been exactly the reverse with this film And one of the things we've come to understand, and we can kind of get into this a little bit more in the Q&A, is that we've become a kind of um, lightning rod for all of the emotion and the science around all this. So we're now working on actually a second film, a follow-up film, which we can talk about again a little more in the Q&A, but that we've found ourselves both taking what the film is, and getting it out into the world, and also learning a tremendous amount, even in this conversation, um, about what, all, what this subject means both to um, people who are planning on having a baby and being pregnant, and then also its impact on all of us as adults going back, and there's a lot of therapies we've begun to uncover, going back and understanding why we are behaving the way we are behaving inexplicably often. And almost it seems intractable, but it actually goes back to, to the in utero time. And then also that there are interventions that can begin to resolve it. That's the really good news.
3: But I just want to mention that um, traditionally, like after you've had your festival run, then it'll get distribution. And we had all that lined up, and we did a VOD release um, back in October. And that since has actually ended because we found that groups were coming to us and saying you know we want to take this film in our country it's actually the film's been translated into 10 languages already and it's because groups all over the world who are finding the film really felt passionate about showing it so like for example in the netherlands it's shown in like every single city in the netherlands you know it's had like a hundred screenings you know Mm -hmm. and um, and so we're, we realized that is a much more... Whereas VOD was the standard kind of... Video on
4: demand, you don't have to... You know, up. like
3: mm-hmm. the, some shadow distributor took all the money and we had nothing, and it was like... We didn't even know who watched it, you know, so we mm-hmm. couldn't keep engagement going with our audience. So we finished that contract, and now we're doing... Um, we're with a new group called Rebel House, um, and we, we're rebels because we take control over the distribution. And so now anyone can go to the website and license the film and show it to their friends or a larger community or a school or whatever. And, and you can even like, check who you want your Skyped-in expert to be afterwards you know, in the Q&A. Oh, yeah, nice. So it's very recent. It's been only like a month or so that mm-hmm. this has been the case. Exciting. So yeah, it's really All exciting. of which
4: to build community. I mean, the whole mm-hmm. idea is this now becomes a community around this subject And we want to expand that. In fact, we'd love to get as many emails as we can of people here who want to give that to stay involved or go to the website because so much of social media can be dehumanizing. We want to use that and the media to be more humanizing because that's critical.
1: That's great. Yeah, I mean, it's um, such a universal experience. Um, We all were born, (laughs) right? And then um, many, many people on the planet, then become parents. Um, And so a lot of this seems so obvious to focus on, and yet there's so many differences, even across cultures, even in the reception of the movie. I wondered if you guys had thoughts about why, what the differences were as you're getting the movie translated into other languages and and visiting other countries and distributing the movie there.
3: Well, I just think we're realizing there have been so, there are so many groups who have been really Especially the birthing communities, for example, they're like, oh, "This is what we've known for so long, but yeah. just you know, it's just been in our own little bubble, you know." And it's so great to see a movie, a big movie up on the screen that's echoing everything, you know. So, um, so it's been awesome meeting all those groups, and then the trauma um, groups, you know, the groups working with trauma, PTSD. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're finding like, "Wow, this is really talking to some of our methods, you know, and, and understanding of how to." Um, intervene with, with trauma. So I think, I mean, Steve and I often talk about how, why in Europe has it been so more readily embraced and, and they've had a longer history of trauma, you know, to, to sort of sort through, process, understand, and come out of. Um, that's kind of a very simplistic way of putting it, but, but it, 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 they don't seem as shocked by the information. You know, mm-hmm. um, sometimes we'll get attacked, um, not terribly, but, you know, just be like, you know, this, uh, you know, in some other screenings, where sort of, is this kind of re- reducing this just to something that happened early on? I think it's hard to, to introduce a new idea that's so, that may seem to strip away your own autonomy, almost, mm-hmm. and, um, and I get that. It, it can be very scary, but then we're coming at it from the point of view of knowledge is what unlocks it. Mm-hmm. When it gets us to a cure, it gets us to better well-being. So, um, I don't know, I mean, that was kind of a glib way of putting it, but I think, you know, there's just been maybe more of a... Tr- um, you want to comment well,
4: on Well, I think we have been attacked, and, and I think would even embrace people here who have had problems with the film and sort of discuss it. What we found is that there are... The film is kind of broken into two sections. One section addresses what expectant mothers, expectant parents need, that kind of information. The other part moves into the sort of matrix part, um, which is problematic for a lot of the prenatal um, uh, practitioners um, because it is troubling. That part is utterly embraced by the trauma um, groups dealing with you know, various therapies, particularly in Europe, where you know, for instance, out of Germany, where there was tremendous amount trauma during World War II, which they're still addressing, has been very much uh, been very very supportive about that part of it. So the film sort of breaks into two mm-hmm. sections, and the prenatal section can be very almost hostile about the film. And in a way, we've we're now working on a shorter version that would be used for in, in for, for nurses and for practitioners in the prenatal world, which removes the matrix part, because we, we want that first part to be available, but in a way we believe, and we can get into this a little bit later, that honestly while that may feel the truth, the baby, the developing baby, knows the truth and, and would even in watching the film be okay about it. But that's a huge issue which there's a lot of questions about. But there has been definitely some really interesting controversy around the film, which is important. You know you've done something when you, when you stir things up. <laughs>
1: Well, thank you all for attending tonight and asking such thought-provoking questions. And thank you to our panel for all their thought-provoking answers. And let us see the beginning of a continued conversation. So um, we'll be up here if anybody wants to come up and chat. And um, thank you again. I want to thank Miriam for putting this together.
3: Thank you so much.
0: (laughs)